Hello guys, welcome to another episode of Forget the Fad podcast. I'm very excited today. We have Dr. Mike Isretel, all the way from America, of Renaissance Periodization. Um, Mike is a professor of exercise science at Temple University. Um, He's got a PhD in uh, sports physiology, a master's in exercise science. Um, he's a competitive bodybuilder and jiu-jitsu um, and you dabble in powerlifting a little bit. Is that right, Mike? I used to powerlift a long time ago. Now I just do bodybuilding and jiu-jitsu. Yeah. So how do you find bodybuilding and jiu-jitsu mixing together? Does it work well? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, jiu-jitsu training is literal combat and it beats you up a lot quite literally. So you take a lot of scrapes and bruises and, um, it's very voluminous. It's very taxing training. I mean, you're just fighting other people for an hour straight pretty much. So it really beats you up. It really fatigues you. So it, it interferes with bodybuilding pretty highly. On the other hand, bodybuilding, because it makes you so much bigger and stronger and actually more gives you better intramuscular, um, endurance. Um, it actually makes me better at jujitsu. I mean, if I was, trying to become optimal at jiu-jitsu, I wouldn't train with weights this much. But training with weights has a much better effect on jiu-jitsu than jiu-jitsu does on weight training. So there's some carryover one way, and the other way is just costs. Do your opponents find you were challenging? Um... And, <laughs> annoying is, I think, the better term. Yeah, so like, there's a variety of things that... Um, so my neck is so big, and so are my shoulders and traps that there's a couple of uh, cl- like really classic go-to chokes that just don't work on me really. Um, and I've actually tailored my game to exploiting those positions. So normally, you know, individuals will think, oh, wow, like I've really got him. And because of my anthropometry, that just really is not the case. And I've learned to really exploit those positions so that individuals get themselves into what they think is a great position. It's actually a terrible position, and I have a lot of transitions from there. Um, and also, when you're big and strong, you can just kind of push people off of you when you're tired of them attacking you, and that tends to frustrate them because they can't start opening up their own sequence of moves. Um, and if I put my moves on myself, you know, I can put a lot of force behind them. And I've been learning technique for a while now, so my technique's not too terrible, and that means I can do some pretty cool stuff. So I think in jiu-jitsu, just like many other sports, the fatigue from strength training can interfere with their jiu-jitsu training and also just as far as time. But yeah. in a pure esoteric sense, the stronger you can be, the better. So I, my strength has never been a weakness in jiu-jitsu. And, and uh, I'm so much stronger than the average person that I roll with that it really it d- tends to be kind of a warped style of jiu-jitsu that I do because, because the strength is such a big advantage. Do you actually compete in jiu-jitsu as well? I do, yeah, regularly. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you fare in that? Much better than in bodybuilding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so today's sure. conversation is going to be heavily bodybuilding focused. I'm not too uh, up to scratch on my jujitsu, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, no worries. Well, I'm actually much more invested in the bodybuilding than I am in jujitsu. I train in bodybuilding much more. I consider it a top priority. Eventually, in my life, I'll transition to mostly doing jujitsu exclusively. But um, bodybuilding is definitely something I'm super heavily involved right now. It's a huge passion of mine, and I love talking about the science and the applications. So, um, you know, I'm I'm totally uh, totally down. Awesome. What's your plans in bodybuilding? What, have you got any competitions in mind? Uh, any seasons? Any years? Yeah, so my uh, current plan is to gain weight 
and the muscle in a sort of um, nonlinear fashion, kind of up and up, up, down, up, up, down sort of situation. Stay lean, potentiate muscle gains, which is something I talk about further from technical perspective. But basically ratcheting up the body weight over the next year and a half. And um, the logic behind that is I'm probably not going to put on a ton more size in my career after that. I'll be in a year and a half, I'll be about 34 years old. Right. Um, and I will be, um, you know, kind of getting towards the end of my younger years in bodybuilding. And in bodybuilding, between the age of 35 and 40 is where competitors really start to come into their prime. And um, I'm interested in making sure that I try to put on as much muscle as possible um, while I'm still relatively healthy, while I'm young, while I'm not injured. Because, you know, there's kind of a sequence in bodybuilding. There's two big things that have to happen in your career for you to be as good as you can be. One is you have to get big. And two, you have to get lean. You can't do both at the same time, at least not focus on both at the same time to their maximum extent. But the thing is... If there, there is actually a timing perspective over the career state for those two priorities insofar as when you're younger, because you're not yet injured um, and for several other factors, your ability to get big is pretty good. Once you get big, another piece of good news, it's really quite easy to maintain your existing muscle size. So it's not something you have to just fight to keep. It's something that with relatively, not minor, but moderate investment of time and energy, you can keep your muscle size once you've gained it. But it's been pretty clear to most competitors and coaches in bodybuilding that older individuals tend to get leaner than younger ones, actually, and they can get leaner in a kind of special look that younger people don't get. This has been described as muscle maturity by some people. Um, old people get grainy lean. It just doesn't look right. You know, it's just all kinds of weird veins and striations and all this weird stuff. Young people struggle with that leanness, and they don't have the size yet. So I think from a long-term perspective, if you want to be as good as possible in bodybuilding, yes, you should periodically compete. Yes, you should periodically get very lean. But in your younger years, I think it really pays to focus more, not exclusively, but more on building that foundation of size. And once you're older, you don't have to worry about the size too much anymore. You can still add some here and there, but really then it's about prioritizing certain body parts and competing a lot and coming in leaner and leaner and leaner to really exploit the muscle you've built to establish your competitive uh, legacy, so to speak. Yeah, I think due, uh, as I've aged, I've learned to kind of embrace the uh, the fluff, as I would say, and you know, accept that putting a little bit of body fat on is necessary to really build some muscle. Do you think that's a problem people struggle with? Oh my God, yeah. So it's one of my... <laughs> One of my little soapboxes I like to climb on every now and again. Um, yeah, I think so. You know, it sort of goes both ways. Is I think the first thing that has to be mentioned. So what I mean by that is there are a lot of individuals <laughs> that, especially in the younger years, have this mentality of like, you got to eat to grow, bro, and they just smash food, gain a kilo a week for like fifty weeks straight, yeah. and then what ends up happening is they just get super fat, right? So. That is bad for a variety of reasons, one of which, you know, once fat cells get much bigger, which means you gain like, you know, any more than like, for most people, 10 to 20 kilos of pure fat on top of normal body fat, that means fat cells start to actually multiply. 
And then when you get leaner, it's harder to get leaner and you're much more susceptible to getting fat all over again later. In addition to that, there, you piss away a lot of time getting lean that you shouldn't have to have spent and you have some loose skin and that just doesn't look good at all from a bodybuilding perspective or just a general appearance perspective. So there's that problem, but uh, you know, sometimes people who have been burned by that problem or have seen in others, instead of uh, drifting towards a more logical solution that in this case just happens to be in the middle ground, I think um, some people go too far and some people just are inherently uh, fat phobic, right? So um, they're just really scared of having a higher body fat and they think like, as soon as they get remotely higher body fat, they think, oh, shit, I'm getting fat. This is it. Like, I'm never going to be in shape again. I hate this. I have to look my best all the time. And it really a lot of times is fueled by just a personal ego issue. You know, it, it, it's, it's almost like if you tell a powerlifter, hey, listen, we're going to spend a couple of months just doing higher reps and not maxing out. Powerlifters are really attached to their one max, one rep max strength. So they're going to do that for a couple of weeks. They're going to try their 1RM. It's going to be lower due to neurological factors. And they're going to be like, this is bullshit. I'm not doing this anymore. But the reality is that wasn't a logical statement. They're just addicted to being their strongest. And just the same way a lot of bodybuilders can be addicted to being at their leanest or close. So what ends up happening is they don't generate enough of a hypercaloric condition or for long enough to build any appreciable muscle mass. They always stay lean, which is cool. They have a lot of you know good attention from people. Instagram loves that sort of thing. Um, but then they never really improve much. And so, you know, they have competitors that they were competitive with maybe four years ago when they were about the same size. And then that competitor comes and steps on stage at 10 kilos heavier, you know, four years later. And there's, there may be three kilos heavier. Well, geez, you know, they get wiped out and they think, oh, what am I doing wrong? What they did wrong was they never took the time to get a little bit, and that's the thing, we're, we're not advocating getting super fat, but get a little bit out of shape. And I can actually quantify that number for males. That number is is getting to roughly um, 15% or so body fat. I mean, after you get above 15% body fat, which for most people means a blurred out abs and, and no more no more clean abs, um, there are some arguments to make against getting fatter than that. But anywhere between 10 and 15%, like if you're at 11% and you're like, oh no, there's no way I should be getting fatter, and you don't have a show coming up, that's just nonsense. You're you're missing out lots of weight gain that can result in lots of muscle. So, and for females, that, that t number tends to be about 10% higher still, so 25%. So if a female is at 18% and says she just doesn't want to get any fatter but gain muscle at the same time, this is kind of a recipe for staying lean all the time and not making a lot of progress. Yeah, it's a difficult thing I get into with clients is trying to like obviously get them to see long term as opposed to this short term issue of staying a little bit fluffy. And that's kind of where we want to go is how do we how do we build muscle essentially is the what people probably want to hear about today and this is kind of why I've got you on the podcast there because I thought who's better to talk about it than Mike Isretel. Um so well, the answer to that question is Brad Schoenfeld. Ah uh, yeah, yeah. I've just uh, finished his book again. So um yeah that's excellent. He he's on my hit list, don't you worry. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I can, if you'd like, I could just start speaking to the general trends, uh, general sort of rules about muscle growth, or do you, would you, do you, do you want to prompt me with something more specific as you, far as a question? You go for it, Mike, because you're, you're the man basically. So you, you, you just run with it, please. All right. I'll, you let me know if I missed anything or if you want to hear more in depth about anything. Thank so you. basically muscle growth is the, in the very large scope, very zoomed out version, is the balance of two 
functions. One is anabolism, the addition of muscle protein to human muscle cells. The other is catabolism, which is the uh, removal, breakdown of muscle protein from the same muscle cells. So if anabolism predominates, you get a net addition of muscle mass. If catabolism predominates, you get a net subtraction of muscle mass and you lose muscle mass. So the question of hypertrophy, to put more technically, is how do we promote net anabolism? And the second part of that sort of answer is, well, the clear answer is to promote anabolic mechanisms, but the sub-answer is actually also to reduce catabolic mechanisms, right? Because the less we lose and the more we gain, the more we gain on the net balance. Because it's one thing to say, well, just try to grow as much muscle as possible, but if you're not attending to catabolic mechanisms and trying to reduce them, then you're going to be growing a lot of muscle, but also losing a lot of muscle. So on the net balance, you won't have a whole lot. Um, so how do we promote, you know, anabolism maximally? Well, there's a training component, there's a nutritional component, and there's probably what would be called a recovery component. On the training component, you know, resistance training is by far the most effective way to stimulate muscle growth. That kind of resistance training is large, the, probably the biggest variable to that, and there's actually some pretty new literature reviews that support this even more, is volume how much training you do is very tightly associated with how much muscle you grow. That training can be through a variety of repetition ranges. So it doesn't necessarily have to be super heavy, but for sustainable long-term gains, we know for sure that that training should probably be between 60% of one repetition max and 80% or 85% of one repetition max. Why is lighter or heavier than that not a great idea? Well, lighter than that has been shown to work in the short term, but the problem is that there is a very, very <laughs> uh, huge underrepresentation of anybody big that's ever gotten huge through high reps only, right? If you survey actual client or actual athlete practices in bodybuilding, uh, which is the sport of hypertrophy, really, um, you know, the number of people that have gotten the biggest, you know, on the planet. Uh, that have done sets of 20 or above, which is kind of like, you know, 60% one rep max or lower, it is basically zero. And you can zoom out to the top 1,000 bodybuilders, to the top 10,000, and it's still zero, right? Um, you know, do all bodybuilders train with a full range of motion? No, but some of them do. So we could say that, you know, there's a, a big heterogeneity, a big variation of practices. How many meals people eat? Like, do you have to eat six meals? No, you can eat eight, you can eat four. But when there's pretty much nobody that has a certain result, that does it a certain way, we got to be pretty suspicious. And in my current understanding, my current likely best guess as a scientist is that a high repetition training of lighter than 60% 1RM, like sets of 30 or sets of 40, if taken close to failure, I think works for three or four or five months. But after that, I think you get just about as much as you're going to get out of it in the short term, and you have to return back to heavier training for more sustainable gains. Now, a couple of months, a couple of years later, you can come back to high reps again, and those pathways will be refreshed anew. But I think the most consistent, the, the best bet, as far as we can currently say, is keep your, most of your training between 60 and 80% of your one repetition max. Why not heavier? There's a fatigue issue. Does training with sets of three heavy sets, let's say 90% of your one rep max, does that grow muscle? It actually absolutely does. But because of volume is the biggest contributor to muscle mass, not intensity, 
we know something really, really interesting. Uh, volume has to be accumulated at a certain point. How much training you do, basically total rep number multiplied by how much weight you're lifting, has to get to a certain number to get you a good, decent amount of growth. Getting to that number isn't very fatiguing if you use light weights. It's not very fatiguing if you use moderate weights and uh, you know moderate rep ranges. But if you use very heavy weights, like sets of three, sets of five, by the time you accumulate enough volume to make some meaningful growth, you have accumulated a ton of fatigue. And there's uh, you know, a couple of studies directly examining this, and this is something that bodybuilders and powerlifters don't within the community really even debate anymore because it's so obvious. And, and if somebody listening to this doesn't really believe that, they can just go ahead and try, in, you know, let's say eight sets of 10 per workout – is a decent way to start, you know, as a decent, not maybe, maybe not, not to start. This is for somebody relatively experienced, you know, eight, eight sets of 10 is a real good meat and potatoes growth range. Let's say you do it twice a week. So let's say you do eight sets of 10 in the bench press on Monday and eight sets of 10 in the incline dumbbell press on Tuesday. I mean, that's a really good growth stimulus for the packs. Take that eight sets of 10 and you take the weight times the total number of reps, which is 80, right? The weight times the reps and uh, get what that number is. Then instead of, so, so whatever that number is, jack up the weight to something you can lift maybe four times for sets of four and try to figure out how many sets of four you're going to have to do in order to get the same total amount of work done. Now, that number is going to be something like somewhere between 16 or 20 sets of four. I don't know about you, Ian. The idea of doing 16 sets of four heavy to those of us who have trained for a while is madness just on paper. I mean, it's completely insane. Uh, yeah. Your spine, yeah, your spine is probably going to end up in the toilet bowl at some point. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, just tr trying that and not for long, you know, just one workout can quickly illustrate how much fatigue that really is. I mean, that kind of workout will crush you. And you won't come back on Thursday if you did it on a Monday and hit it again. You're going to be like, holy crap, I need to take two weeks off. Like, what the hell happened to me? So that, interestingly enough, that much fatigue, you think, oh, man, I really messed myself up. I'm going to grow even more muscle. Well, the thing is that within a broad range of reps, you just grow the same amount of muscle as you did if you did sets of 10 but you get that much more fatigue, so it doesn't play out. So it's kind of a complicated answer to the question of, well, why can't I train much heavier than 80%? The thing is you can. You just won't survive it. It's not sustainable, right? It's like saying, you know, oh, can I eat only rice for my carbohydrates for the next two years? I mean, yeah, you can, but it's not sustainable. You're just going to get so sick of it, you're not going to want to see it anymore, right? So uh, same kind of answer. So now we have a, a range you know, between, on average, 60% and 80% 1RM. That's how heavy we want to go in the gym. And then we can talk about volume recommendations next. Any questions about that particular recommendation? Would there be times where you kind of um, integrate blocks of training with like higher intensity, lower volume? Totally. And, and that would be, you know, for a little bit more of an advanced discussion on periodization, your muscles tend to be very receptive to growth for a while. And then if you train them for growth and for growth and for growth and for growth over and over and over for months and months on end, they start to develop a little bit of a resistance to hypertrophy. They kind of get um, all the mechanisms that supply growth tend to get a little bit of stale. So I think generally between, you know, depending on the, the athlete, between four and six months, of really quality training between that 60 and 80% range, 
I think it's a good idea to move away from high volumes of training and do maybe one month of lower volume training. And the cool thing about low volumes is that they really, really resensitize you to growing again when you just start doing more training later. But if you use low volume and light weight, you tend to lose muscle. However, if you use low volumes and heavy weight, you still get the full resensitization benefits, but you don't lose any muscle and you get stronger, which could help you stay safer or maybe even make your volume training more effective. So during those times, you can train between, oh, I don't know, 75 to even to 90% 1RM, although that's pretty extreme, but 75 to 85% 1RM is a good range for that resensitization month. But notice it's not, it's just at the top end of that normal recommended range, maybe five percentage points out. It's not like we're saying there's a time to train between 97.5 and 100% 1RM, right? For pure muscle growth outside of strength improvements, there's really not a time to go that super heavy. So I'll tell you what, a little myth to bust here. Bodybuilders going for run repetition maxes, it always breaks a little bit of my heart to see <laughs> because First of all, you could be using that training time better to actually grow muscle or to safely resensitize muscle growth for later, and the safely is a big part of it. We all know that one repetition maxing, while it's critical for weightlifters, strongmen, and powerlifters that need it as a part of their sport, per rep, it is much more risky than doing sets of 10, right? Why take that risk if there's no upside? So when bodybuilders max out, it's one of those you know expressions of just kind of pure ego. And it's not like, oh, but he's big. It probably makes him better somehow. Or people say, well, it works for him. Yeah, not everything athletes do is perfect. And sometimes they do things that are highly imperfect or highly bad idea. So I think one repetition maxes or sets of two in a pure bodybuilder's arsenal are, I wouldn't even say largely useless. I would say contradictory to what they're trying to do. Yeah, kind of specificity is key, and that's kind of the least specific thing towards muscle building that potentially is, really. I mean, it's as far as lifting weights, totally. And the thing about specificity, um, if you get uns if you get non-specific enough, if you remove enough degrees of specificity, the human body has a finite ability to adapt, and it has it, it adapts directionally, right? It's a principle, sub-principle specificity called directed adaptation. Your body's just going to try to get good at whatever it is you're doing with it, and because it's dealing with a finite amount of muscle, finite nervous system operation, and a finite resource of recovery, it's going to, at some point, if the stimulus is too different, have to degrade some structures to improve the one's and improve the abilities of the new stimulus. So it's not just a matter of like, oh, you can do one rep maxes, but your time's better spent doing this. It's actually that one rep max training actually literally is a negative, not just a too far away to help you sort of situation, right? So my analogy for this is like a race car analogy. If you want a race car to go as fast as possible on the track, you build it exactly to specifications to keep aerodynamics principles in line, to power the engine, to make sure it has a high you know, ability to do RPMs. But if you start trying to turn that um, race car into a pickup truck and, and have actual you – know, have it carry stuff around – First of all, you have to engineer some kind of carrying case in the back, and if you have a truck bed in the back, it ruins the aerodynamics considerably. Right now, some things are still in common. It still has a powerful engine, 
but then you need to retune the engine to give more torque instead of more RPM, which is different. You need to retune the transmission to do that. And all of a sudden, it's not just like, oh, my car's also a truck, and that's cool. It would have been faster if it wasn't, but it's still just as fast as it used to be. That's not the case. It's slower than it used to be. So I think a lot of times when people say, oh, you know, like I've got like three different things I'm involved in. I'm trying to weightlift and powerlift and bodybuild. I think at a recreational intermediate level, there's not really much of a trade-off there that you're going to notice. But as you get better and better, you start to seriously have to ask yourself, how serious am I about each one of these goals? Because at some point, goals start to not just be nonspecific. They start to be counter-specific, right? They fight each other for limited resources and um, it's very clear in my jiu-jitsu. Like, would I be a better bodybuilder if I didn't do Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Yes. Would I be a better Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner if I didn't do bodybuilding? Yes. It is my choice to do both at the same time, but I'm clearly aware of the trade-offs. I just don't think that everyone who bodybuilds and does one rep backs is is aware of the trade-offs. You know what I mean? I think some guys are just like, oh yeah, let's push the weight today. Oh great, that was a PR. Sweet. High-five each other. And and not much thinking happens after that. And that's kind of the thing we're trying to combat with evidence-based practice. Yeah, primarily like the people I will be working with will probably be the beginner to intermediate level. So what are your kind of key considerations for, say, the beginner transitioning into an intermediate and what are they sort of, what are they looking at in terms of progress as well? Totally. So I think that, you know, the intensity stuff that I just said is, should be really taken into consideration. The next uh, probably biggest variable as far or it's actually the bigger variable, but intensity is just uh, convenient to talk about first is volume. Volume we usually count as just uh, a proxy because otherwise we'd have to just talk in actual numbers of work, uh, energy uh, expenditure and joules and, and that stuff gets a little, you know, just uh, there's no reference frame to it. But um, a good proxy is number of working sets per week per body part. And I think for most individuals, they should be shooting for somewhere between 10 and 20 working sets per week per body part. So for example, if you train legs uh, and you do five sets of squats on Monday and you do five sets of leg presses on Thursday, that's 10 total working sets for quads. I think that's a pretty good start. And for some people, maybe very close to optimal. I think other people are closer to that 20 range. So they would do 10 sets of squats on Monday and then 10 sets of leg presses on a Thursday. And everything in between and even outside of those boundaries is valid. But we want to keep people away from the extremes that likely don't work. For example, there are very few people that grow the best with five or less working sets per week, right? So if you're like trying to get bigger shoulders and you do a set of lateral raises after every upper body day, and you have four upper body days per week, uh, that's four sets. You're probably going to grow just at first, just from being a total, you know, total novice. But then after a couple of months, you're just going to get no more growth and just never going to get bigger again. So you're going to just wonder in vain why your shoulders are never getting bigger. And on the other end, there's a serious risk for doing so much that your body can't adequately recover from that effort. And then it, first of all, because you're not recovered, won't allow you to overload any further. And I'll talk about progression in just a second, but it won't let you progress in those movements. And also it'll just physically at a physical chemical, biochemical level, just hypertrophy signaling won't go through or it'll be completely overwhelmed by catabolic or muscle breakdown signaling. And much over 25 sets per, now there are exceptions, individuals, etc. But for most people, much over 25 sets per week 
uh, is just going to be uh, overkill and it's going to be above their maximum recoverable volume, the most they can do and still recover. And that's just going to be super non-productive. And I'll tell you this, there's a, there's a sad, maybe not irony, but there's a sick twist of fate there. Um, at least the individuals who did too little work and didn't grow saved some time and effort that they could have put into watching cartoons or making origami <laughs> or sightseeing or bird watching or doing something else with their life. There's a sick twist of fate to people who still don't grow even though they're doing too much because what are they left with? Well, they pissed away all their time at the gym and they pissed away so much time that not only did they crowd out the rest of their life, they got nothing for it, right? And that, that's a really, really unfortunate place to be. So I would say err on the side of less, but as you're training, periodically try to increase the number of sets that you're doing and see how your recovery is. If you're still lifting uh, the same kind of weights for the same kind of reps you're used to or more, that means you're recovering. If you start to experience recovery issues, you start getting a little bit weaker, it's a good idea to take a deload week, a very easy week of training, drop your number of sets maybe by half. So let's say you were doing 16 sets per week and at about 17, 18, you started really having recovery problems. Take a deload week, super easy week, and then start at maybe eight sets per week in that week after. And every other week or something, increase the number of total sets by a set or two and work your way back up to 16, 17, 18 sets. You might encounter some recovery problems again, then you deload and repeat. If you don't, just keep going up maybe till 20. You'll encounter some recovery problems, then it's time to take a break and repeat. And that's a part of the general principle of progression. Now, of course, we don't just progress through volumes, we progress through intensities as well. So what does that mean? It means more or less, on average, when you show up to the gym, you should be trying to lift more weight or do more repetitions or get closer to failure or do more volume. But the weight thing is a big part of the equation, I think. So if you're using 60 kilos in the squat for sets of 10, the next workout, maybe you can do 60 kilos again for sets of 10 and it'll feel easier. So workout after that, try 62.5 kilos and do it for sets of 10. It'll be pretty challenging. The workout after that, maybe it'll be easy to do it for sets of 10 and then go up to 65 kilos the workout after that. Now, mind you, you can increase sets during this time as well. Eventually, you won't be able to recover. You'll deload, but then when you deload, you come back and start at maybe 67.5 kilos for sets of 10. That way, by only with what your body can tolerate, slowly but steadily pushing for more weight over the course of the months of training and a little bit more volume, you uh, you know are, are sort of putting down the basic roots of progression. Lifting is not, and hypertrophy is not about coming to the gym and doing the same thing, right? What's that uh, little like phrase? If you do the same that you've always done, you're going to get the same you always got, and that's completely true in hypertrophy training. You have to challenge your body. So, you know, um, are you familiar with who Tom Platts was by any chance? Oh yeah, yeah, we all know his right. legs for sure. So his best legs of all time. Time. And Tom Platts, um, and my, my current coach actually used to train with him. Tom Platts had a goal of being able to squat uh, 405 pounds, which is like around 182.5 kilos. We'll say 180 kilos. His goal was to squat that for a set of 50 repetitions. Crazy. Right? <laughs> so if you want legs like, and he did it. So if you want legs like Tom Platts, that's kind of what you have to do. You know, you don't get there overnight. So you think, okay, how do we get these huge muscles? Well, look at the weights and sets and reps that the best bodybuilders are doing. It's completely insane stuff. How did they get there? They got there just like everybody else, slow and steady additions. You know, the best bodybuilders on the planet, 
you know, doing dumbbell presses with, you know, the 90 kilo dumbbells, they didn't just walk into a gym one day doing 10 kilos and then walked in the next day doing 90. They did 90, you know, 88, five for a while, you know, or 87 fives for a while and nothing was happening. And a long time before that, they did the, you know, the sixties for a while, the 62.5s. So it's one of the situations that we're always trying to meaningfully and measurably progress when our bodies get really tired and fatigued, we give them a break and then we come back and start climbing that ladder all over again. Cool, man. Awesome answer. Um, how important is form for the beginner, um, obviously starting out in their pursuit of building muscle? Yeah, I think it's super important. And here's why there are two factors. Well, three, the reason to do good form is number one to keep you safe because you can still get a good workout with shitty technique, but you will get hurt. And if you don't get hurt as a beginner because you're too weak, you will get hurt as an advanced individual. Number two reason to use good technique is that it actually allows you to target the muscles that you're targeting better. So you get better growth and with less expense of fatigue. So for example, if you squat with a rounded back and you let your butt shoot up before your quads, you're actually taking stress away from your quadriceps and they're getting the easy way out, but you're increasing your chance of injury. If you squat upright and you squat all the way up and down and use your quads and stay upright the entire time, you're for the same number of sets and reps, your quads get hit like crazy, but your lower back doesn't fatigue as much and your chance of injury is lower. So it's risk of injury goes down, effect goes up, and here's the last reason why beginners should really be training for technique as their number one goal. And I really do mean that. For the first six months of training, and maybe the first year, good technique should be the number one metric of progression. If your technique is getting better, it doesn't matter if there's more weight on the bar. It doesn't matter if you're doing more sets and reps. Good news is beginners will just be able to improve all that right at the same time because they're so sensitive to growth. But technique's number one for the following reason, and here it is. The kind of technique you learn when you first start something, technique has a tendency to be really resistant to change later in a career. It's a really, really big fundamental fact. It's seen all over sport training. So if a gymnast learned how to do a particular kind of flip for five years with her first coach and it was very wrong, the chances of her relearning it to do it correctly are actually frighteningly and depressingly low. Just the same way, if you learn poor technique when you're early on in bodybuilding, it's going to be – the good thing is is bodybuilding and hypertrophy training, it's – um. It's easier to change technique because it's so volitional. It doesn't happen at a high speed. You can be very aware of it, but you'll still regress back to crappy technique at every available opportunity, and you're going to have to stay really diligent with your new good technique, and it's going to be incredibly hard to pull it off. It's going to be a huge test of time if you learn the poor technique at first. So the best possible way to progress in bodybuilding and to progress in hypertrophy is to learn great technique from the get-go really focus on that for like a year and then after that it'll just be default so your technique's always going to be pretty good you'll have to try to make sure it doesn't break down at very high reps or very high weights but it's going to be an easy process because you're going to have a default understanding your body's just going to naturally do good technique but so and at that point in your beginner career here's another cool thing how much weight you do in sets and reps doesn't matter that much because you're so sensitive to growth. It's easy to grow. So while you're focusing on technique, you're maxing out your growth anyway. Now, here's where the big pitfall happens. Let's say we have two individuals, one focused on their technique at year one, one only started focusing on technique at year five. 
Well, at year one, both individuals get about the same amount of muscle growth because you just the body maxes out its muscle growth anyway, just with a bare minimum in the first year. However, the person that at year five has to change their technique, what's the number one thing that has to happen if you're really going to improve your technique and you're already pretty strong? What do you have to do to the weight on the bar? Uh, yeah, you have to bring it right down. You got to bring it down so you can practice good technique. So then what is the benefit at that time? from a muscle growth perspective of bringing the weight down, well, there is none, right? So that, and that's the catch 22. So if you fix your technique early, then you can just grow, 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 grow the rest of your career. If you fix your technique late, however long it takes you to fix technique, when you've dropped your weight down and start practicing, that is an opportunity because now your muscles don't just grow from light technique training. They've been beaten down so much that they're quite resistant to growth. Now you're having to relearn good technique is a cost, right? And it is opportunity cost of muscle you could be growing instead. So it's one of these things that has a definite time scale in which it's best practiced, at period, right? So, and and it's one of those things where you know, I, has my career in bodybuilding been like this? No way, you know, I had to relearn a ton of techniques. Yeah, um, definitely. I'm, I'm, I think we're all the same though. We'll look back and we'll think, geez, I wish I did something differently. Totally. But we can offer the people who listen to us and our clients a better way that we unfortunately weren't, uh, uh, didn't have the luxury of taking. I think that's the thing. And the joys of being a coach is like the people that come to you don't make your mistakes, do they? Yep, absolutely. So um, what about exercise selection? Um, are there certain exercises that don't lend themselves well to uh, kind of hypertrophy work? You know, generally speaking, exercises that are multi-joint compound movements have a couple of advantages. One, they allow for high forces to be used safely. So for example, you don't, you're not going to do a straight arm lat pull down with 100 kilos, that is really risky actually to your tricep tendon and your your lat tendons, and you can get hurt doing that. You don't do a one arm curl with a dumbbell with you know sets of four, okay? But you know for the same kinds of forces, if you do a regular pull down or a pull up, you get the same kinds of forces, but because there's other joints and muscles to counterbalance too much force in one joint, the safety goes up. So compound movements are safer than isolations at the intensities you have to train at um, in order to grow the most. In addition to that, they're economical because, for example, if you do a barbell bent over row, you grow basically your whole back, your rear delts, and your forearm flexors, your biceps, etc., all in five sets. But imagine having to split all that up into individual isolation work. You'd have to do some forearm curls for five sets. You'd have to do some bicep curls for five sets, <laughs> you'd have to do some rear delt flies for five sets, and then you'd have to do some direct lat pull-down work for five sets. I mean, geez, you're at the gym already for an hour. You could have been at the gym for 20 minutes. So, uh, and there's also, you know, not any formal evidence I'm aware of, but a lot of individuals, too many for it probably to be a coincidence, really kind of swear by the barbell compound heavy basics as the ones that are most effective to build size. Dumbbells are okay, machines are okay, but I think the core of the most efficient and practical and effective hypertrophy program should be compound barbell basics, uh, pull-ups, push-ups are included in this actually, 
bench presses, incline presses, squats, deadlifts, barbell upright rows, shoulder presses. That's the kind of stuff that probably is most hypertrophic. Some dumbbell work is great. Some machine work is great. But especially for beginners, barbells should probably be preeminent and everything else should take a secondary seat. More advanced individuals can sometimes mix in a little bit more machine work, a little bit more dumbbell work, particularly because they're so strong. It's an issue of fatigue management and safety at that point. But generally speaking, the, the exercises that are the best are the compound barbell moves. And you would place these at the kind of the beginning of the workout, especially totally. for the beginners, yeah. Yeah, when you have the most energy. And they're also the most technically demanding. You don't want to have to do a high technique exercise when you're already super tired. Yeah, it's it's totally a skill, barbell squatting, and you don't want to try and do it when you cream crack Absolutely. It. It's much easier to do some hamstring curls at the end of a workout than it is to do some squats at the end of the workout. So you might as well squat first and then do the hamstring curls later. Yeah. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about the concept of MEV, MAV, and MRV. Yeah, so I kind of went a little bit into that already without using those terms, or at least most of them. So MEV is the minimum effective volume. It's the least amount of work that you have to do as an individual to grow muscle. And... You know, for most individuals, it's something like maybe six to ten working sets per week. So what does that mean? That means if somebody is who's an intermediate or above, if they do anything less than five sets, even their heavy, hard-working sets per week, they're just not going to grow. It's below their minimum effective volume. There's a range between minimum effective volume, and that's the least you need to do to progress at the slowest rates, but measurable ones. And then it goes all the way to MRV, which is maximum recoverable volume. Maximum recoverable volume is the most volume you can do to still recover from. And that's not the best volume to train at because you barely grow your maximum recoverable volume because it's just the most you can possibly recover from. But you grow the most in that entire range all the way through. So I think the best kind of training, the beginning of what we call a mesocycle or kind of a phase of training, a block of training, you start at your minimum effective volume and you slowly, one or two sets at a time every other week, move towards your maximum recoverable volume that allows you to overload on your uh, volume, right? Progress through your volume and it keeps the training effective because we don't really ever want training to be below our minimum effective volume or above our maximum recoverable. Now, periodically, like during one of those phases we described where it is a phase of low volume training in which we're trying to resensitize, or if let's say we're on holiday, we might want to try to train with a volume that is so low that all it does is preserve our muscle mass, but it doesn't improve our abilities. That's called the maintenance volume. And it's an important figure to know about yourself at some point, because here's the deal. If your maintenance volume turns out to be 15 sets per week, If you go on holiday, you really either have to accept that you're going to lose muscle or just spend a lot of time in the gym. And that's maybe not the best way to spend holiday. So if you find out, in fact, that you were wrong and that your maintenance volume is only five sets per muscle group per week, well, geez, all you got to do is get to the gym once or twice a week while on holiday, and you're really not going to lose any muscle mass. So that maintenance volume is cool to know for those low volume phases, for deloads, for active recovery phases, and for when you're on holiday, because that really can allow you to train with the least amount that you need and still save your muscles. So when you come back from holiday, for example, you are 
you have the same amount of muscle mass you've always had. You didn't take any steps backward, and now you can start building a new and going forward from there. Awesome. Um, in terms of uh, periodization, um, can you give us just a brief um, definition of what periodization is? Yeah, it's, it's the logical structuring of training phases to accomplish the overall goal of progressing at the most fast and sustainable rates, but also uh, to make sure that you are timing your phases appropriately to competition or to your demands if needed. So periodization is super duper important in sports that have distinct uh, times for competition or competitions for the year. So for example, if you know that the Olympics are coming up in two years, you don't exactly just, oh, I'm just going to train to get better. You have to put together a plan so that you can peak your performance at the Olympics in the various phases that you set up. One phase is going to make the other phase go better. That's called potentiation. One phase potentiates the next and the next and the next. It's kind of like a domino effect until you hit that domino last at the very Olympics and do as well as you possibly can. Periodization as a general concept uh, is more or less that, but it can be applied specifically to hypertrophy training, and here's how. In hypertrophy training, we have one goal, grow muscle. But the systems that grow muscle, they get stale, they get tired if you keep trying to do that for too long. So a cool uh, sort of lesson from the periodization of hypertrophy training is uh, something I've already mentioned a little bit ago. It's every four to six months. You know, every, So uh, during that four to six months of normal training, you should be trying to lift more and more volume especially, but probably more and more weight through those cycles that occur four to six months. But after every four to six months, it's probably a good idea for about a month to back away from high volume training, go to lower volume training, resensitize those mechanisms so that your muscles can grow big again and can be responsive to training. And once those mechanisms have been resensitized, then you are, you've essentially potentiated, right? Improve the future chances of muscle growth. And when you do that, you go back through another four to six months of muscle growth training. And there you go. That's a very simple approach to periodization for hypertrophy in a nutshell. I mean, there's more complicated models and ways of doing things, but that's really the basic one they're all built on. Awesome. Would you say there's kind of an ideal um, sort of length of program? And, and does it change from beginner up to advanced? Yeah, for sure. So what we're really talking about is how do we work between our minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable volume? Yeah. And we have to do three things. We have to start every mesocycle on average around our minimum effective volume. We have to end it around our maximum recoverable, but we also have to present an overload basically every session. We've got to do more every session. Because we do more and more every session, and because the work is hard, cumulative fatigue will start to add up. At some point, the fatigue rises so high that you can't recover from training anymore, and you can't present an overload anymore, so you have to deload in order to restart the process. So basically, if for no other reason at all, you're, you'll hit your MRV just by accumulating too much fatigue. So within those constraints, the real question is, how consistently, how long can you consistently train hard for until you, starting at your minimum effective volume, until you hit your MRV? And the answer to that is, I think, for beginners, depending on a lot of variables, but beginners can generally do 8 to 12 weeks of consistent increments 
until they get really fatigued enough to where the increase is impossible anymore or just not a good idea. Then they do a week or so of deloading, and then they can go back through another 8- to 12-week phase. I think intermediates are more in the 4- to 8-week range for how long their accumulation phase can last, for how long can they go up and up and up in their volumes and intensities until they need a break. And then I think for advanced individuals, gee, you know, three to six weeks is probably the phase length that we're looking at. So one of these really cool implications here is that monkey see, monkey do gets you somewhere in bodybuilding training and in hypertrophy training and sport training, but it doesn't get you everywhere. So if you simply look at what the best bodybuilders do, some of these individuals take a lighter week or a lighter session, geez, every three or four weeks. Do we need to do that as beginners? We say, well, they do it. They're huge. I'm going to do it too. Probably not, right? So the answer to that is that maybe as a beginner, you could survive eight to 12 weeks of continually incremental training, but an advanced lifter can't. And, you know, that's one of those things that just by understanding sports science and educating yourself and listening to your body, you could figure out. But if you just copy someone, you're actually shortchanging yourself. Um, beginners don't accumulate fatigue as fast as, as stronger people. Why not? One, they don't have as much muscle to damage, right? And number two, they're just not lifting super heavy weights. I mean, if you're squatting 60 kilos for sets of 10, how much fatigue can you really accumulate from that? Well, you know, some. But what if you're squatting 260 kilos for sets of 10? You're going to accumulate fatigue a whole lot more, and you're going to need to deload more often. So I think there's that uh, difference in accumulation length, uh, phase length, based on uh, progression uh, through a career. Awesome. Um, what about um, kind of lagging muscle parts? Um, I mean, would you refer these to kind of specialization uh, blocks? Yeah, you know, it depends on how jacked and how good at bodybuilding someone eventually wants to be. Um, I mean, if you want to be really, really good at bodybuilding, the first thing you have to do when you start out training, you should be a generalist. You should train everything, just about the same amount. When you get more advanced, you can start to shift your training actually to more strong point emphasis and to get those really big muscles that are really going to be sort of your, your, your uh, calling card. And then eventually, as a very advanced uh, individual, you're going to want to really bring up the small muscle groups that you've kind of been not tending to. And that's some similar case in powerlifting. If you are just a recreationally trained individual that just wants to look the best, the key to prioritizing muscle groups is first of all to make sure that your training for that muscle group is between its MEV and MRV. Because what is the typical answer that someone on the street would give you if you said, hey, how do I prioritize my biceps? How would they tell you to train? What would they tell you to change about your training? You'd put them right at the beginning, wouldn't you? Right, or like do more biceps, yeah. right? But how do you know you're not already doing almost at your MRV. Imagine you're doing at close to MRV for biceps already, 20 sets a week. And someone's like, you want to grow biceps more? You're like, yeah, I'm struggling. They say, well, you got to do 25 sets a week. And you go, wow, great. That's a great idea. And then you're over your maximum recovery volume. Your biceps are probably going to shrink in size if not get hurt. So you're really doing yourself a huge disservice by following such linear thinking. So the first thing I always recommend to people if they have lagging body parts is are you sure you're between the MEV and the MRV of that? And there's ways to figure that out, especially just based on recovery. 
Once you know you're between MEV and MRV, what you do is you do the most effective training you can for those body parts. You specialize during a hypertrophy, I'm sorry, during a weight gain phase because when you're gaining weight, that's when you gain the most muscle. So some people say, oh, I really want to work on my pecs and they'll be doing a fat loss phase and they'll really target their pecs. Well, you don't gain a lot of muscle on a fat loss phase, so all that pec targeting is kind of wasted. But if you target your pecs preferentially in a weight gain phase, then you can gain some pretty serious pec size. And the last part of the ingredient is to, to give the rest of your body a break so that you can make room for this really hard training. Um, you want to bring down the volume of the muscles that you maybe don't want to emphasize as much. That does two things. First of all, it makes room for the harder training and our total body's ability to recover. And also what it does is it makes sure that that muscle that you already have that's a big strong point doesn't also get trained really hard and then also get bigger and then also leave the other muscle that you're trying to bring up look small. So for example, let's say you want a bigger chest, but you're pretty happy with the way your legs look. What you want to do is during a weight gain phase, train your chest well between its MEV and MRV, but take your legs and maybe go down just to MEV or even better, just to maintenance volume with your legs. Your legs won't grow at all during that phase, but your chest will grow. At the end of that process, your chest will be much more balanced with your legs. But some people, they have this idea, they're like, I'm going to prioritize my chest. Great. And then they still train all their other body parts the same way. Well, especially, you know, most, most lagging body parts occur not because of training differences, but because of genetics of how individual body parts respond. So if your quads are genetically super responsive, but your pecs are not, and you just really start diligently hammering your pecs, which is good, but you also keep hammering your quads, if you don't overtrain or overreach because it's too much to hammer them both at the same time, great, but now you have even bigger quads and even you know, bigger chest by a small amount, but the quads are so responsive that they, you might even look even more out of proportion, even more ridiculous. Do you know what I'm saying? It, it's almost like, look at Tom Platz's physique, right? He had a decent upper body and the best legs of all time. If he wanted to become more balanced, do you really think he'd train his legs as hard as he still could? No way. He'd have to bring them down a little bit. So I think that's, uh, you know, and, and, and that doesn't mean that people listening to this need to bring down their legs, but they just need to stop having the legs accelerate so far ahead of the other body parts to bring them all in balance. Yeah. I mean, you, you touched on uh, genetics there. Um, obviously, they're important. How important are they, do you feel? Or... Very important. But you never know what your genetics are unless you try, and you try for a long time. So it's pretty clear that it's actually really difficult to predict how big somebody can get based on how big they are after no training or even after a year or two of training. Some people will have cute – they'll start out jacked, and they'll get really great results in the first couple of years, and then they'll stop getting very impressive results after that. Other individuals don't start jacked at all, and they don't have super impressive results after two years but they keep growing and keep growing, keep growing for 15 or 20 years, and they eventually become enormous and super successful at building muscle. So the way you find out your genetics, you got to give it a go, you got to give it a run. And the thing is, if you want to be more muscular, you know, you don't pick your genetics anyway, you might as well do your best job. And if after a couple of years, you realize that this is kind of thing isn't for you, then you can always switch hobbies. Yeah, good, totally. Um, right, what sort of things like, it's going to influence um, your ability to kind of train well, recover. That's going to draw away from your MRV. That's kind of outside of the outside of the gym. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of really big ones. Sleep is probably the biggest. If you undersleep chronically, you're going to have problems growing. Um, if you undereat chronically or you have poor nutrition, you're going to have problems growing. And um, if you have a lot of stress, both physical and emotional stress in your everyday life and your poor stress management, you're also going to run into growing problems. I think all of those things combined, if they're not good, you pretty much just stop growth dead in its tracks. And all of this is really common sense stuff. You know what I mean? If you're eating well, sleeping well, and you're uh, good about managing your stress, you get your work done on time, you don't get too emotional about things, you're giving yourself the best chances for growth. Yeah, I think you touched on it with your uh, like martial art training that that is going to draw away from your um, MRV a little bit. I, I've just had a child, so that's kind of a, another oh, outside yeah. influence that I've just kind of had to go. Well, training isn't the priority. Let's take it down to that that MEV. Um, right. Well, I think in terms of training, um, I am more than happy with what we've went through and I'm just very aware of the time and mm -hmm. what I'll probably do Mike if it's okay with you is just get you on another time and we can delve into um, nutrition totally that sounds great cool um, before I let you go where can people uh, like hook up with you find you on the interweb Totally. So the company that I work for and that I co-founded that has uh, books and templates um, and all these other products to help individuals kind of, you know, because all I give a big theoretical talk, right? And we have taken all this theory really and put it into really simple, easy to use programs and explained it really well in really detailed books. And our, we have a staff of coaches that also coaches people through this process online. So all that stuff can be found, you know, at renaissanceperiodization.com and Instagram at rpstrength, letter R, letter P, and then strength. And uh, that's a really good place to find all this boiled down to how it's really effective. And then for me personally, I'm Mike Isretel on Facebook. I have a public account. Come follow me, and there's a lot of good stuff on there. And we always, I'm always posting informational content. And at RP Dr. Mike. Uh, R-P-D-R-M-I-K-E on Instagram where it's mostly pictures of the not so delicious food I eat and uh, half naked pictures of myself in gymnasium scaring other people. Brilliant. I'll put all the details in uh, in the show notes. Um, again, Mike, I just want to say a huge thank you and uh, keep doing what you're doing. It's amazing. Thank you so much for having me on and I, um, I can't wait to be on uh, next time for nutrition. Thank you very much, mate. I'll see you later. Okay, bye. Bye.